Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Today's title is going to be on mast cells and how they affect vaccines, drugs, food allergies, a lot of things, and possibly this new mast cell activation syndrome. You know, it just so happens today's guest and myself are both specialists in allergy and immunology. You know, as my listeners know, I do a whole range of things, but when it hits home, I really get very excited. And today we're going to have a very in-depth conversation on how mast cells, an underappreciated cell, is so important in allergic reactions to vaccines. And we're going to talk a little bit even about the COVID vaccination program, drugs and foods. And we're going to hopefully discuss a newly described syndrome, which I get a lot of calls now from patients about something called mast cell activation syndrome, which I think maybe ties a lot of these conditions together. I'm sure a lot of you have heard about B cells and T cells and the importance of the immune system. That's something that the AIDS epidemic really brought out when I trained in the 1990s. And it was what they called the adaptive immune system. I don't get too technical, but that's like your super smart memory immune system. But there's another part of the immune system called the innate or what we call primitive immune system, which doesn't have memory. And I think for a long time, because I teach this at the medical school, was overlooked and mast cells are considered a part of that. My guest today, Dr. Mariana Castells, is internationally known as an allergy immunology specialist at Harvard Medical School, where she is the director of both the Drug Hypersensitivity and Desensitization Center. She's also the head of the Mastocytosis Center. So she's what you call a triple threat in our profession. She's a top researcher. She's a well-known clinician, especially with her drug desensitization clinic. And she's really a highly regarded teacher. And the last thing, which I have to mention, there's barely a month that goes by when I'm reading my journals, the allergy journals, the New England journal, that she's not in one of these journals. So she's very current. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Mariana Castells to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. And actually, I have to say something that I'm so glad that you're bringing the mast cells to the forefront. They have mm. been the forgotten children of our immune system. So I'm totally grateful that you're thinking about them, that you're thinking they're important, that you're thinking that people need to know more about the mast cells. You know, what's funny about this, Dr. Castells, is that, you know, again, I've been in the field 30 years. We're always focused on IgE. and We'll get into all this technical stuff. But it was really from the patients. I was getting calls all the time. And we'll get into this about patients concerned about mast cell activation. And the more I looked into it and the more I researched it and saw your articles and some from a hematologist, Dr. Afrin, it started to really all come together. But I want to start today a little bit on the fun side. I'm always fascinated too. You're from Spain originally. And I actually had Dr. Alessio Fasano from Harvard, who was on uh -huh. my podcast back in September, who's from Italy. And I trained abroad for a while too. So I'm always fascinated. We'll just start out with a little bit of fun, a sort of a two-part question. How did you decide to come from Spain for medical school to do your residency in the United States in pediatrics? And how did you end up in the field of allergy? So I was just curious of that you know, take you back in time. Right. So I'm going to correct you a little bit. I was already an allergist when I came here to the United oh, States. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. 
what brought me here, I was actually doing uh, with Antonio Ojeda, who was the chief of allergy at the hospital La Paz in Madrid. I trained in Barcelona, my hometown, and I did my medical career there. To make it, you know, in a nutshell, he had a, this conundrum of a little girl who uh, was uh, have asthma, have tremendous anaphylactic events, who had hives all the time, and nobody was able to figure out what was happening. So I said, hey, Mariana, this is your turn. You know, your first year fellow, just find out out. And it's like, wait a second, how can I do this? And then he told me, you have to be a detective. And I said, okay, okay, right. okay. That's okay. what I love about allergy. So I had a diary of the girl. What, what was he, she doing? What was she eating? Where was she? So when she was going through a field in the summer, she was wheezing through those fields in Spain, in the, in the north part of Spain. Those fields have potatoes. And then when she was eating, she ate some of the food had had potato starch. So I started to put a, something together, 100 ingredients, and every one of them seemed to be kind of relating to potato. So I asked my boss, do you actually think she could be allergic to potatoes? And I said, that does not exist. Nobody's allergic <laughs> to potatoes. You know, nobody's allergic to potatoes. <laughs> and that, that's kind of what I really like when people challenge me. So that right. doesn't exist. It cannot be done. I said, okay, let's, let's look at it. You know, that's the way I was built, my genetics. And so I actually started to do that for, you know, a very long story short. I discovered that potato is allergenic. It has yes. uh, low molecular weight allergens. And I actually published that in the for the first time in the Journal of Allergy Clinical Immunology. Oh, wow. And that attracted a lot of uh, attention because I did what is called a Western blood. So it's mashed potatoes and the peel of the potatoes and the flour of the potatoes. And I put in gels and I was able to cross see that the serum of the girl had something. Oh, wow. That light up. But the most interesting part was the following. So her, I said, how can I prove that this is true, actually? So I got the serum of the girl and I put it in the mother's arm. Oh, right. That was the passive transfer, right? That was the old way. I asked the mother, eat potatoes, and it light up like Christmas trees. Wow. So that was the old... You could get away with that back in the day, right? Yes, Before yes. HIV and hepatitis. Nineteen eighty-seven. But that was the classic way. You know, I trained at the Cook Institute in New York, Dr. Cook, who sort of originated allergy in this country. Something... We're going to get into this passive transfer, where exactly what you just described was how they basically knew there was some type of factor which we later learned is IgE, that triggers allergies. Oh, that's fascinating. For me, what was really fascinating, not only was discovering what made it, but how could she be so sick, you know, from wheezing, uh, losing her blood pressure from passing out. And the cells that I discovered behind that were the mast cells. Yeah. The mast cells have those powerful mediators that can do anything and everything from an itch to actually kill you. So, so that actually opened, you know, my fascination to those cells. They are the most ancient cells of our immune system. Right. And, and I decided to just go and pursue. I, at that time, I had finished my fellowship, uh, but I pursued a PhD in the field of uh, mast cell biology. Was that in Spain also? You came to the United States for that? Yeah, I came to the United States. Larry Schwartz uh, was my mentor. Yes, sure. He's in Virginia. And I did that by discovering that tryptase, you know, the major product of the mast cells, is in the nose when you sneeze. Yes. Uh, it's in the blood when you have an Avalaxis is in your lungs when uh, there's a wheezing. And that led to my career in the United States. Oh, wow. What a great story. I, that was even better than I thought. <laughs> 
so we're going to move on. And I, again, we're going to probably get really in depth on a lot of things, but I want to always make sure that the listeners are enjoying this as much as I am. So mass cells, as you were pointing out, I think they were really a very overlooked cells. And I'll explain to the listeners what we mean by that. You know, the field of allergy, I would say up to the 1950s, because again, I trained at an institute where there were a lot of doctors who were very prominent in allergy in New York in the 1950s uh, at my institute. You know, they used to always tell me that, you know, our specialty never got any respect. And one of the reasons was it was sort of considered a fringe, you know, voodoo. We don't know what those guys are doing. I mean, even at the Cook Institute, and I tell patients, they laugh at these stories. People used to bring in their vacuum bags of dust. And at the Cook Institute, they used to take it, dilute it, spin it, do stuff with it, and inject it back into the patients. And understandably, our colleagues in the other field of medicine thought this was crazy. And then in 1967, the doctors at Chicago, if I'm saying this correctly, at National Jewish and a Dr. Johansson in Sweden, discovered that there was this immune globulin called immunoglobulin E, for short, which was this mysterious factor that essentially allergists had been looking for for years that explained why people develop allergies. So for a long time, I think in our specialty, there was understandably tremendous amount of attention given to IgE and everything that influences it. And obviously we know that mast cells are one of the cells that have these receptors for IgE. But in that process, we forgot to look at, I quote, the histology, that it's actually these cells that are very, very important. So I wanted to ask you what you think. I mean, obviously you're fascinated with mast cells. I've heard, I've had on another podcast where somebody described them as patrol cells. What do you think their role is? I mean, I mean, again, also, that was why I think they were ignored because people always thought, oh, it's the allergy cell. But people aren't just born with an allergy cell. A cell has to have a function, right? And the same way histamine. So what's your take on all these years of researching this? What, what is the mast cell and why should we be concerned about it? Yeah, so my fascination led me to work with the people who actually have been like Rick Stevens, Frank Austin, you know, the, the people who actually have been at the core of, of a further understanding. But in essence, mast cells have been the more primitive cells of the immune system. And cis curds, you know, who are millions of years separated from humans, have, have mast cells. Wow. And the reason is that, uh, you know, when we were primitives and our grand, grand, grandmother Lucy was in the woods, the mast cells use to protect us against parasites, against scorpions, against venoms, against bee stings. So all of that, the mast cells have inside them, you know, big granules, they release. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, probably we will talk about, you know, histamine, mediators, all those things. And the important thing about the mast cells in humans is where are they located? So the mast cells are located everywhere. The whole skin has mast cells. Right. I think even allergists, honestly, I mean, you're obviously a super researcher in this area, but I think even in my career early on, didn't appreciate that. I mean, it was like, okay, mast cells are in the lungs, they're in the nose, the skin, the quote, the allergy areas. But to think about in the brain or in the gynecological areas, this was so eye-opening to me. So so essentially, there are mast cells everywhere. Like you said, in the connective tissue, in the skin, in the mucosal membrane of the gastrointestinal tract, they're very important there from the mouth to the tongue to the esophagus. So mast cells are located everywhere. And what we just recently had not appreciated and it's been appreciated is that depending on where they're located, they have different functions and then they have different mediators. And so, you know, the mast cells in the lung are more kind of 
simple muscles, like in the alveoli, the breathing tubes, that the muscles in the skin are bigger, they have more granules, and they're mm. more par- they have more powerful mediators. So what we call uh, muscle heterogeneity has just been unfolding in the last three or four years. Not muscles are created equal. And they are everywhere. Yeah, that's a really important point. And I'm going to ask you something now. Again, it's mechanism-wise. But again, I think for my listeners, I'm going to try to make it really relatable. You know, I had a professor when I did some of my training at Columbia Presbyterian in New York, and he was really an interesting guy. He was actually one of the few board-certified allergists and dermatologists in the country. You know, it was back in the day, a lot of people could do multiple training and get certified, but he was just a very charismatic, interesting guy. And his big mantra was, you can't be allergic to something the first time, for example, that you eat it. So a lot of like, because, you know, it is perplexing to patients. Like, I've had shrimp a hundred times. Why now did I break out right. in a rash? And I, I always thought about that a lot and I explained it to patients. But there is a little bit of a nuance to that because with the mast cells, it does make sense. You know, obviously, the, the classic picture of mast cells with the IgE, like looks like the Y-shaped receptors on them has to have a certain amount of coding before they bind and release the histamine. But yet, we do know people have allergic reactions, and we'll get into this for the first time, even from, from a vaccine. So what do you see as the, how to differentiate these mast cells being activated by an allergic, like an IgE mechanism versus maybe, I guess, a complement? Is that the other? Why would they just start to release? I mean, I know, for example, strawberries and codeine, those are what they call mast cell direct releasers. That you don't have to... You know, it's quantitative. It doesn't have to be repeated. It could just happen on one time. So I, I know I'm talking a lot, but I'd rather hear what you, how you see it. Yeah, so so I think that you're absolutely right that uh, uh, most of the time we have understood mast cells as cells that are reactive when they have been re-exposed many times to penicillin, to a cat, to pollen. They have to, we said, you know, three times you're exposed to the pollen, then you can react. But the mast cells, as I was mentioning, in the last four or five years have been found to have a lot more receptors. So, so what you're talking about that IgE is that the mast cell has a receptor for that IgE and then the receptors touch each other, we call cross-linking, and then they release the, the bridging and the mediators. But there are many more receptors receptors on the mast cells. And for example, there are one receptor that is called a kind of fancy name, MRGPRX2, that has been discovered just in the last you know, five years. Yeah. And that receptor makes people react to uh, medications like antibiotics, for example, uh. that are called quinolone, ciprofloxacin, levofloxacin, and then also uh, reacts uh, people who react to general anesthesia a tracuronium, rocuronium, and they go through those receptors that are called G-couple proteins. So they don't need to have an IgE on it. So some people have those receptors more expressed or or more available, and then boom, they react the first time they That, that is react. so important what you're bringing out. And again, for the listeners, because I know this is so frustrating for them. It's frustrating for their doctors because you know, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of these cases because you do the drug desensitization program. At, was it Brigham? or uh, the Dana-Farber. The Dana-Farber. Because, you know, the patients that have those multiple drug allergies, you know, it's one of two things. Their doctors think they're crazy. They're frustrated. And it's very disheartening. And before also up till now, too, it wasn't possible to even test or, or figure out what was going on. So, but I think it helped. Exp- I think this whole thing with the mast cell helps explain that because why are these people reacting to so many different medications, specifically antibiotics? Right. So one avenue is like the penicillin. And I wrote a piece for the New England. So you have to be kind of exposed, you know, several times 
and then and then there is also familial transmission. So we think that there might be also some some genetics involved. Yeah, in Timothy that. Sullivan used to talk about that. That was his work at Hopkins. Right, and right. and we haven't yet uncovered, you know, the kind of the genetic determinants of that. But then on the other hand, we have discovered more and more that, for example, mast cells have receptors for uh, light. They have receptors for stretch. So some people, uh, you know, they exercise and then they have this flushing. Uh, and so mast cells do have a, a, a whole cohort of uh, receptors that are extremely important that we just like scratching the surface for that. Some people do have emotions and then they release histamine. I'm so glad you brought that up. I have this paper right here from somebody in your state, <laughs> Theoris, uh, Theoridis. It's hard to say his yes. name. It must be Greek or something. We call him Theo. Theo, Tom Theo, Dr. Theo. I mean, he wrote an article that was about the impact of psychological stress on mast cells and yeah. really delineates the mechanisms. And, and again, because, you know, patients are frustrated. They're like, oh, my God, like, why is this happening? I didn't eat anything that I'm usually allergic to. I didn't do this. And then, like, the question, obviously, you ask them very carefully and sensitively, you know, even under a lot of stress. And they go, yeah, why does that matter? But it does matter. Yeah, there is like, uh, we are also unfolding connection between the uh, mast cells and the nerve endings. Right. So that those connections, so there is interconnectivity between mast cells and a lot of the, the other cells in the body. And that's what makes the symptoms, you know, very important. So one thing that uh, I want to say is that it's hard to make a diagnosis of a mast cell activation disorder. We're going to get to that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because mast cells mimic everything and anything. Right. You know? Well, that's what, that also what really frustrates doctors. You know, when you look at the list, a lot of these published papers of what the symptoms could be, the doctors throw their hands up and I'm finding it more and more fascinating because, and again, two patients are doing their due diligence these days. I mean, Google has become their new medical yeah. library and, uh, you know, and we're going to get to that because again, I want to try to help them, but I like to transition to a disorder, which is rare but it's very well defined. And I think we need it as the backdrop to that is mastocytosis, which I know you've done a lot of work on. Yes. So I have a list here, but I, I like to, you know, I, and I find it fascinating, but what would you say is the most common clinical symptoms like with mastocytosis? And so actually I'll tell you one of the funny thing too, one of my mentors here in New York at Columbia had spoken to you a decade or two ago because uh, one of the former supermen from TB had mastocytosis. What do you usually find? Because again, you know, some there are certain symptoms that are would really surprise people. Right, right, right. So I have to say that mastocytosis, you know, when I started to do that, uh, Frank Austin, my mentor, like in the early 90s, brought, you know, 40 charts to my table. I was a first year fellow. And he said, hey, Mariana, you're going to take care of those patients. And I said, what do they have? And he said, mastocytosis. And I said, what is that? And so then I learned, and, but one of the things that he told me is he says, you know, the first time they have a symptom and the time where they have a diagnosis spans about 10 years. Wow. So I need you to shorten that time. Right. And so I published in the New England Journal of Medicine about six years ago about a case of mastocytosis from, from a marathon runner. And the span of time was nine years. We haven't made any progress. We haven't made any progress, it's tough, but, yeah. we, but, but we know a lot more. So essentially people can have symptoms that are nonspecific. So essentially that is what happens. People feel like flushing, feeling that diarrhea, feeling all those symptoms. Right. And the thing that actually is at the core now of this is that there's a cheap test that's called triptase. Yes. Very cheap test. You know, it's, it's, I think it's been underappreciated because I think as you mentioned totally. and other people that like a lot of times they're saying now, even any patient that's had a venom anaphylaxis, maybe any patient that's had anaphylaxis, maybe they should be screened, right? Because 
they're maybe more prone. True kids should be the friend of everybody. It used to be very hard test to get, though. I remember we used to have to send it to Larry Schwartz in uh, right. Virginia, but now the major labs are all doing it, right? Blood count, you know, a CBC is actually more expensive than a triptase level. Really? So so getting screened for triptase is the first thing about mastocytosis. And people who have mastocytosis have more mast cells in their body. Right. It's not that they are more active. They just have more right. mast cells. Right. That's a big distinction. Right. Right. And then a rash is the first symptom. Well, so- let me, let me, I want to ask you two things that you published in a paper that I have here, which I, I thought also was super, super important. It was actually about mast activation, but it really probably could apply to, obviously does apply to mastocytosis. Which was that I think people don't appreciate the GI symptoms. And mm-hmm. in a lot of cases like hereditary angioedema, which is a, another condition we see, sometimes that's the first presentation, you know, because again, you're always thinking, oh, it's got to be an allergic kind of presentation. But when patients are having, like you mentioned, diarrhea or bloating or ulcers, things like that nature, first thing we wouldn't start to think about is mastocytosis, obviously. Right. When you look at the history, because you've t- obviously taken care of probably maybe more patients in the United States than anybody with this, do you find that GI is very prominent and that usually is... Yeah. So so the secret for the mastocytosis is the two two organ systems. Okay. So, so essentially, one of the major expressions of mastocytosis is having abdominal bloating, pain, diarrhea. But again, it has to be paired with some other symptom. So because the mast cells, you know, are everywhere. Right, they're not just so isolated. Yeah. Exactly. So having diarrhea is probably Crohn's or is mm. uh, irritable bowel syndrome, some other disease, but diarrhea with flushing, diarrhea yes, with right. some other. So so again, the secret of uh, making a good diagnosis is thinking about always like two organ systems. I like that. And I'm going to challenge you on something else too. Now, this is kind of funny because I've been giving a lot of thought to this. My first day 30 years ago or so in the clinic, you know, at Roosevelt Hospital in New York, before they would let you do skin testing, they say, look, check for dermatographia. And for mm-hmm. our listeners, that's where we stroke the skin and we look to see if it hives up immediately. Like, you know, the patients know this when they, let's say by accident, stroke their skin too hard with something and it wheels up. And I always say dermatographia means I can write your name on your back. And I want to ask you this, but we were taught that dermatographia is in 5% of the general population. But as you published that it's in 90% of the patients that have these mast cell mastocytosis or mast cell activation, which we'll get to. So do you think that's actually also a good crude test to just get your, because I've been you know, telling patients, I, you know, to help confirm along with triptase or even to think about ordering triptase level. What, what's your thoughts on that? So dermatographism, yeah, like you said, is like scratching the skin and being able to write your name there. And it's like creating what we call a wheel and flare. And that is due to the release of histamine and and some other potential leukotrienes and prostaglandins there. And it's much more often seen in patients with chronic idiopathic urticaria and in other other diseases. So so a dermatographism that is very exacerbated, so it happens every single day, it happens all the time, and that bothers the quality of life, I think is a good sign that maybe... and, and The mast cells are activated or excessive. All the time. And, and then associated with some flushing also, and yeah. like uh, spontaneous flushing, not, because dermatographism is a, like a physical... Parts you have to touch it, but then associated with flushing can be a telltale sign that there is more activation of the mast cells. Definitely, yeah, it's interesting because maybe who knows a lot of the urticarial syndrome, especially all the physical mm-hmm. ones, these all might be mast cell related diseases. Uh, let me just ask because I want to finish off on the mastocytosis because they said it's a very well described but rare condition. So you normally would look at a serum triptase level. You would you then also in the blood if that was elevated, would you look at what's called a C kit mutation in the blood? 
Right. So, so for somebody who has like symptoms of, you know, abdominal bloating, some diarrhea, mm-hmm. flushing, and then episodes of kind of feeling very dizzy and then kind of almost losing it, like we call it syncope right. or anaphylaxis, in that, in that person, we would actually look at the tryptase level. And then we will do something that's called a kid mutation. And the kid mutation is the presence of the kid is on also on the mast cells mm-hmm. and, is the re, and is the cause of the mastocytosis. There is a mutation and the telltale mutation is called the Diaz-David 816VS Victor. So it's a specific mutation. And we can actually, without doing a bone marrow, we can have that mutation done. That's what I wanted to ask you because back in the day, it seemed like they were referred to a hematologist for bone marrow. So now that could be done in the blood. In the, in the peripheral blood. And, it, and if it's positive, you know, then we can, I mean, we had a, we had a woman who um, was starting to react to allergy shots and then she was having those syncopal episodes pretty severe. And then we stopped that. And then she started to have abdominal bloating and then diarrhea. And then she was losing it at home, young woman. And her tryptase was very mildly elevated because if you look at the WHO criteria, it has to be 20, but her tryptase was 12. So we said, mm-hmm. you know, we did a peripheral blood mutation. It was positive. Really? Oh, so you really went that extra step. Yeah. I went extra step. And then we did a bone marrow biopsy and she has systemic mastocytosis. And why, why is that so important? Because now she's protected. Every time she goes to have surgery, she can have her antihistamine. She carries an EpiPen. And those mast cells that are uh, mutated react to specific and non-specific things. Mm-hmm. So again, people who have mastocytosis can also have like food allergies. They can also have environmental sure. allergies. Right, right. So they get, lo- they get lost. I, I had a patient that came to me who was getting repeated severe local reactions to allergy injections from another doctor, because I only do sublingual. And I think she had an anaphylactic episode too. And then finally, really one of, you know, she had switched doctors and one of the other doctors before she got started again said, hey, before we give you any more shots, she was really smart. She said, let's get a triptase level. And sure enough, it was elevated. And uh, I actually was able to treat her with sublingual. So so I think, let me let me just, yeah, uh, sure. the, the patient that I, I published in the New England, we published in the New England, uh, nobody had actually undressed that patient. So the telltale of mastocytosis is looking for what we call early carapay Mendoza. So when somebody has all those symptoms, say, you know, undress. So when he came to my office, like I said, okay, undress uh, yourself. I want to see the whole body, the whole skin. He said to me, but you're an allergist. (laughs) (laughs) You're not a gynecologist or a urologist. Okay. (laughs) Or a dermatologist, you know, or or even a dermatologist. No, no, no. I said, you know, we need to. So that's kind of the other thing, you know, the the dots that are early carapay Mendoza that don't go away, are well, that's also signs. your European training. I'll tell you why. It's really, it's really funny because I, I trained in Israel and they always told me a very funny story because one of the doctors there in Israel was training at, at one of the Harvard hospitals, his fellowship. And, you know, it was, I guess it was back in the 80s, whatever. And, you know, all the technology was coming out and they sent him to go see a patient. And he went there with a couple of the other fellows, not the older doctor, but the, you know, the, not the attending, but the fellows. And he goes to the bedside and he's putting his hand, you know, checking where the chest wall is and listening very carefully to the auscultation. And the other American cardiology fellows are looking like, what are you doing? He goes, we're going to do an echo in a few minutes. We don't really need to do this, you know? And, and you know, you, people really forget how much is picked up by still physically examining the patient. How important, how important is that? How important? Like I said, this guy had been seen by nine doctors when I asked him to undress and he had typical. Oh, he had the lesions. Yeah. Oh yes. He had urticaria pigmentosa limited to his upper thighs. But you know, if you don't take the pants down, you don't actually yeah, see that. That's yeah. a good point. <laughs> <laughs> I have a quick uh, plug also, you know, for mastocytosis, men that react to hymenoptera, bee stings, and then pass out 
are very likely to have mastocytosis. So this is something that that we have discovered. Uh, it's mm. it's like a, a a subclass of mastocytosis. So men all ages who pass out after a bee sting, a wasp, that is potentially like thirty percent of them are going to have like what we call a clonal mast cell disorder and systemic mastocytosis. And that's very important because those events are almost you know lethal, uh, could be deadly. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that too, because again, somebody also who trained me also said something very interesting, like when I was an internal medicine resident in New York, and our, our hospital was right near Central Park, and then sometimes, you know, in the summer, a patient, you would have a young patient come in, and they were hypotensive. You know, and there was obviously, yeah. and sometimes they'd be having an arrhythmia or something terrible is going on. And of course, everybody's getting ready to shock them and, you know, whatever. And when I left again, one of my really good attendings said, be very careful, look at the body very carefully, check for any insect right. things, you know, I mean, because again, like, you know, one of the kids who might have been working or stung in the, in the park, you know, here, here in the middle of New York City, but there's a park there. And when there's a park, there's bees and wasps and everything. And then you don't treat that the right way. You know, you're not going right. to, you know, obviously. Well, and, and, and to, to uh, follow up on that, EpiPen, epinephrine, epinephrine, epinephrine. That really is really the important thing. And from this, you know, if people wanted to take, you know, two home messages, a striptase is your friend and epinephrine is your friend. So people who have had those episodes, they really need to talk to their allergies, to the primary care physician, to the pediatrician. Am I a candidate for carrying, you know, an auto-injectable? Because what happens is when those events happen, the ones in the central park, we are not there. The doctors, we are not there. The patient is by itself. They really need to be able 100%. to be educated and then uh, inject themselves and know what to expect from that. So that I think is a, a key critical. I mean, learning, you know, from mast cells, I know how powerful they are and they can actually wipe out the blood pressure in, in minutes. So somebody who's really, really healthy can become, you know, almost li- in a life-threatening. Right. Here you take a perfectly healthy person. It's not like an older person who's got heart exactly. failure. This is a young person in the prime of their life and all of a sudden they're teetering, you know, for their survival. And I remember, you know, in Virginia, the first time I was in the emergency room with Larry Schwartz, this guy comes very chubby, two coronaries, and he has been stung by 20 bees. And he is like choking his throat and we cannot intubate. And somebody is like, we cannot give an EpiPen to somebody who is cardiac. And I say, we are going to give two EpiPens. And we gave, and he had a little blip in his ST, but that's it. But he survived. Right. That's a great point. You know, it's so interesting you say that, too. I I love when you bring up certain things. You know, one of the most disappointing things to me is that so often when I've seen patients after they, you know, whether it's a new patient after they've been to the emergency room, so few are given epinephrine for allergic reactions. I think they're, I don't know if the staff is nervous that they'll get get an arrhythmia. I mean, even young patients, they, it's always Benadryl putting them on steroids. And I'm like, this person needed an EpiPen yesterday you know right 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 now so i go to the emergency room when i was a fellow with dr Shepherd, my other mentor and i see somebody wheezing covered in hives and and there is a drip like with benadryl and steroids and i said how many epis have yeah. you given to this patient and they say oh epi no 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 and they have given a benadryl and steroids there's no indication in anaphylaxis for benadryl or steroids just so you probably know to say the mechanism anyway so the epinephrine really stabilizes the mast cell from secreting more of the these mediators that are so dangerous dangerous yeah totally let me totally, ask you too totally. when we finish up on mastitosis because this is like this is an amazing lecture for me um what do you do as far as treatment you do you target the organ there's no really definitive underlying like kinase inhibitor or something for this at this point or is there no, 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 there is, oh, it is? There is, okay. there is. actually, we have really oh. good news. Is so this new? The first, I mean, I the first, yeah, okay. Yes, 
it's it's new. So the first plug is for the TMS, the Mastocytosis Society. Anybody who has mastocytosis should go on the website because you know I am at the board of medical uh, uh, survivors, and 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 that that is really a good place for filtering information. You know, because you go and, and say Doctor Google doesn't help. You really need to have filtered yeah. information. So for people who have mastocytosis, I would like them to go to the TMS and to the centers of excellence. And so now, you know, starting, a, we there, there is one thing, you know, when I actually started to do mastocytosis, Dr. Austin told me, you know, uh, they live 40 years. The life expectancy with the indolent really? kind, uh, indolent systemic mastocytosis is a disease like rheumatoid arthritis or even diabetes. Or uh, So you can live, you know, 40 years, 50 years with that. So treat the yeah. symptoms. So I started to do that. And for 20 years, I did that. But, you know, patient came came back to me and said, Dr. Kessels, you know, I really don't go out to much of my house because I, I never know when I'm going to have diarrhea. And, and, and people were coming back to me and says, you know, I passed out and I was not expected to pass out. So we started to think about that. And I use something that's called omalizumab anti-IG for mm. those patients. And we have already published that. And it really works. But in the last five years, I've been pushing around for companies that have what we call tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And for the first time in the last three years, we have clinical trials now with one of them. It's a tyrosine kinase inhibitor that blocks the kit. And that kid mutated. And that that is a clinical trial that is now multi-center. So it's not available yet, but it's it's on its way. It is totally. And the patients who have mastocytis can jump on those clinical trials. They are open. I have two clinical trials now at the Brigham. And there, there's multi-center. There's many, many other centers that do mastocytosis where the patients can jump into those clinical trials. And mm-hmm. actually, you know, the clinical trials are so fabulous that they can actually even clear part of their skin really? lesions. Wow. So, so we are actually working towards children because one thing that we haven't talked about is that, you know, kids who have early care epigmentos and cutaneous mastocytosis, by puberty, most of the kids are cured. Why do you think that is anyway? Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, why, why does that happen? I mean, there's very few things in life, I mean, like they just kind of disappear. Well, it would be a take a longer conversation, but the origin of the skin mast cells is different than the origin of the other mast cells. So there is two waves of mast cells. And so... And the puberty, you know, the regulatory sites for those mast cells are estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. So you can actually eliminate the clone. So we're working very actively well, at that's that. That's really fascinating. That's great to know for, for people listening. Let's move on to something to the, I guess, the, the cousin of mastocytosis, mast cell activation syndrome, which, again, as I said, 10 years ago or so more, nobody ever even heard of this for quite a while. A lot of doctors said, oh, this is just another diagnosis made up by the functional medicine community, you know, the, you know, the kind, of, kind of diagnosis that every, the crazy patients, the ones that have brain fog, headaches, whatever, you know, kind that I see for a lot of different reasons who, you know, really suffering and have legitimate symptoms. So how do you, I know you published on this a little too, how do you go about assessing these patients and differentiating from the mastocytosis like that? hematologic disorder and versus the people that are just, well, maybe don't have this. So what, what is your core things that you use? Right. So in 1991, they meet, you know, all, I, I did not, but uh, all the people who are doing mastocytosis in the world from Peter Vellon, Dean Metcalf, Frank Olson, Larry Schwartz, everybody met there. And they made the, what we call the WHO criteria, World Health Organization criteria for mastocytosis. And they actually made a provision. And they said at that time, 1991, they said there might be patients who have symptoms of mastocytosis, and we can define them now, that do not have the mutation. And 
and do not have a bone marrow that has mast cell aggregates because that needs, and they don't express what we call CD25, which is like the aberrant mast cells. And those patients in the future will need to be studied. And that was 1991. So at that time, that we recognize as, as a community that there are patients who present with flushing, with itching, with abdominal bloating, with uh, brain fog, uh, with uh, wheezing, with syncopal episodes, Man. or pre, uh, whose quality of life is not good, who might actually respond well somehow. And we can talk about what is the management of those patients. But when we look at their tryptase levels, the tryptase might not be elevated to 20, which is the cutoff. And when we look at their bone marrow biopsy, they may not have a mass of aggregates. So they don't conform to the uh, WHO criteria. So that's kind of backing down. Now, coming now towards here, uh, we have actually several things. One is that what we call the a non-clonal mast cell activation syndrome is a collection of patients who present the symptoms that we just talked, in which we measure three things. We measure the urine mediators, so like uh, and methylhistamine and prostaglandins. So, about that. So, you, so you do find that to be helpful. The very helpful. And that, that was a, that's a twenty-four hour urine. You need like. And yes, and we and and the Mayo Clinic is actually doing now without the twenty-four hours. So in spot. Really. Drugs. So we wow. started. And do they need to let's say? Um, be off antihistamines or anything? It doesn't really matter. They don't. They don't. It doesn't matter because you know the antihistamines bind to the histamine receptor. It doesn't bind to histamine. Okay. So they can continue to do that on antihistamines, uh, and we measure those mediators in the urine, and then we measure the mediators in the. Do you find that sometimes those are elevated where the tryptase is, like you said, somewhere still in a, in a normal range? I mean, normal range, absolutely. Do you do both of them? The PG, I'm sorry, the, was it the PGD2 and the N-methyl, yes. was it N-methyl histamine? N-methyl histamine. So we measure those mediators in the urine and we found them elevated. And more importantly, we actually allow them to measure that when they are not feeling well. So sometimes, mm. you know, the, the mast cell activation syndrome is a disease where, you know, there are good days and bad days. And so we actually ask, okay, when you have your bad day, just go ahead and then measure good your mediators. And I have had patients, you know, who I have carried for about a year. And at the beginning, I could find at baseline, everything is normal. And when they have their bad yeah. days, like six months after that, we have been able to measure and it's been elevated. And why is that so important? Because then we can do targeted well, therapy. That's what I to, yeah, that was, that was what I wanted to get to next. You know, before we get to targeted therapy, I just want to clarify one other thing too for the listeners. And so again, clinically to making the diagnosis, and again, I was looking at one of your papers, which I thought was really excellent to explain. It's like, so about 90% of these patients have abdominal pain, which again, as I said, would might get overlooked. They would be looking for other GI issues like small bacterial overgrowth or, you know, gastritis, things like that. 90% of them you mentioned had dermatic graphia, you know, where they stroke the skin or some type of flushing. And this I found very interesting too. 72%, again, and you surveyed, had medication reactions. So that's like another yep. alert. You know, when you have people penicillin or they start telling you two or three medications, that should set off the light bulb. Something's going on here. And there is a confounding factor. If you look at that paper, I think it's the Hamilton paper. Uh, the, uh, this paper uh, says that, uh, you know, over 80% of those patients are females. Yes. Yeah, I hate that, right? And, yeah. that, and that is, and, and that, no, no, that's a very interesting thing. And then also because, because there is also in the drug allergy, which is my second field of expertise, we also find that there is more females than males. 
So, so again, why is that? Is it females because they're exposed to, you know, ups and downs in, hormones. in, in hormones? They are recognized non through non-self in a different way. So there's a lot of interesting things now. And the NIH is very interesting in studying, you know, personalizing that to the females and, and, and underst further understanding what we call the inflammasome. Are we more inflamed because we go up and yeah. down, up and but down? But a shout out to women, though. You know, what? one thing I do say, I always say that uh, and I, my patients laugh, I always say that the stronger sex because of course when they give childbirth but obviously COVID's proving that too women are definitely doing better than men <laughs> you know yeah for, for some things for some things it, it yeah. works for some other things it doesn't you know there's a lot more women who have drug allergies and there's a lot more women who have this muscle you know, uh, let me ask you one other thing too just before we get into how to treat this because I know that again a lot of listeners really want this but again something that I started to learn the last year too is that sometimes also when you have this borderline elevated tryptase level you may actually have this genetic condition called Alpha exactly. hereditary tryptosemia, which is actually a lot more common than, than, than we, we thought. thought. It's called hereditary alpha tryptosemia, HAT for short. So this this was discovered by uh, Dr. Joshua Miller yeah, and, and Jennifer Lyons at yeah. the NIH in 2016. It was published very uh, prominently in Nature Genetics, and they found that people who presented, uh, you know, with symptoms uh, of flushing, of mm -hmm. itching, and but they also had other symptoms like POTS-like symptoms, maybe uh, L or Delos-like symptoms. They had duplication or triplication of the TPSAB1, uh, which is the tryptase. As genetic marker, they also sampled the general uh, public, and they saw that this uh, mutation is very mm. common. So, four uh, percent to six percent, and that's been replicated in the UK and and some other studies have it, but they don't have any symptoms. So, having it, you know, having it is not sufficient. So, the majority of the people who have it don't have symptoms. So, we need kind of the two hit thing. There was a paper that said though the reason they like to check for that. Let's say if somebody has a borderline elevated tryptase level before going to a bone marrow. But you're saying you don't have to do a bone marrow anyway now if you do the seed, if you do it through the blood. So can we yeah. avoid that? I mean, you know, patients don't look forward to the bone marrow. <laughs> exactly. So if we have somebody who has like a tryptase between 11.4, which is a normal average, and 20, which is kind of the mastocytosis, and in all that gray area, we do we do the kid mutation, yeah. the one that uh -huh. I mentioned, to rule out mastocytosis. And then we do the gene, something that's called gene by gene. So genotyping for hereditary alpha tryptosis. Okay. So the hat, and we do those two tests. And, and th those two tests can be done by swapping the cheek. So we don't really need to do a blood test. For which one? For the, oh, for the genetic one? For the hat. Interesting. Interesting. Is that, does that go to a, gen, to a like, um, there was a lab that did it. Called gene by gene. Or gene by gene. Yes. And I don't have stakes on the lab, so nice. <laughs> I'm not doing a plug no, for that. No, it's but, great but to it's know. But it's the only one that we no, have. I, I love, you know, I love doing when obviously when it has to come up with celiac. And I think it's obviously that that is an area where genetic testing is going to be awesome. Let me ask you, and then we, so there's another area I want to go on to. But so in treating these patients, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do like a little bit of a shotgun thing. Gastrochrome, sodium yes. chromalin, you know, which again, hard to get sometimes. You know, it's a liquid. You got to drink it. You find it effective. Is it good for GI symptoms with... Mass cell activation, you know, and or even. So we start from the beginning. We do H1, H2. H1, H2 antihistamines are the, kind of the first line. The second line would be a locotrine blockade, something like Montelocats, okay. Accolades, Zaloton. The third thing would be prostaglandin blockade also, and we use aspirin really? for that. Oh, wow. So those are the three. 
So we kind of target the mast cell mediators from the histamine to the leukotrienes to the prostaglandins. And then we use what we call mast cell stabilizers, which would be uh, sodium chromaline and then ketodifen, which is like a, a mast cell stabilizer and an antihistamine. So those two are extremely helpful. And, and the sodium chromaline, you know, can be used from 100 milligrams daily to 800 milligrams daily. So it's like two vials four times a day or when, one when vial would you once use a that? day. Would you use it if they're having a lot of G- GI or, or just in general? So that's a really good question. So the uh, sodium chromaline has shown, you know, in questionnaires to actually help with gastrointestinal symptoms, with skin symptoms. and Really? So it does symptoms. help with the skin? So it does skin and then brain symptoms. So it stabilizes the mast cell. And would they need to do this before yeah. meals? I mean, it's important so it doesn't get, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, 15 minutes for better absorption, not, not for anything right. else, just for better absorption. And then, and then we go at mast cell stabilizer. And then, and then for people who do have like those anaphylactic events, we have been starting to use uh, as chronic idiopathic urticaria, the omalizumab, the anti-IGB, mm. the, the Zolaire thing. So, and we have a paper by Dr. Janetti, my associate in the Mastocytosis Center, the co-director now, uh, where it's been extremely helpful. So it has stabilized, you know, uh, most of the people uh, with that. <laughs> What do you think about desens- the classic desensitization? I do a lot of sublingual, which I found to be very, mo- it works very smoothly. We don't get anaphylactic reactions. I've done this over 30 years. So actually, I'm doing it with the foods now, which I'm really excited about. I'm sure, yeah, you know, yeah, you know Edward works. Kim, you know, a friend of mine, a colleague, you know, has done a lot of great work with peanut. But so what do you think about desensitization as a, and obviously that's your center, but as a way of stabilizing the mass cell, would that be, because someone says, oh, I'm terrible in the spring, or, you know, there is some foods that are causing, oh, definitely. so you, it could hopefully shift that immune response to a more stabilized. Right. So we actually would uh, like to uh, stabilize all the patients through their IG reaction. So if somebody has a food allergy, we said either you don't eat it or you get desensitized. If they have allergies, which 20% of the patients with mastocytosis will have allergies, like in the general population, we said, uh, you know, allergy uh, treatment, immunotherapy, vaccinations, whatever sort of that. And that tremendously helped stabilize the mast cell. So that that is very helpful. Okay. I'm going to ask you about a little bit of holistic stuff too here because patients like to ask and I find interesting. They say vitamin C, they say quercetin. Do, do you find uh, there's any merit to some of those helping to stabilize the mast cells? So what I say is like one size doesn't fit all. So because we, we cannot know- Can't hurt. It cannot hurt, but because we don't know our genetics, you know, we, we don't really know our receptors. So I always say, somebody comes and says, I would like to try quercetin. I say, just try it for three months. So don't do it for longer if it right. doesn't help, but but trying doesn't hurt. Yeah. Uh, and I totally agree with, we know less than we would like to know in terms of the patient's genetics. You want to know one other little secret, which you probably know, but I, I find this fascinating because I learned this many years ago from an allergist that was very unusual in Buffalo, Doris Rapp. Back in the day, she used to treat food allergy patients with um, essentially sodium bicarbonate, okay? And um, she called it Alka-Seltzer gold because it didn't have aspirin in it. So, I, you know, I remember I, I actually went up to visit her myself once with my wife. To, she was a physician to see what she was doing in allergy. It was, it was just fascinating, you know? And then I saw a paper from Japan, again, maybe about 20 years ago. This was really interesting. There was a patient that had exercise, wheat-induced exercise anaphylaxis. You know, if he ate wheat, he was okay. But if he ate wheat and then he went, you know, they exercised him, he went yep. into anaphylaxis. You're familiar with that. You know, Dr. Uh, who was it? It was the expert. Sheffer. He's the expert on that. But anyway, in the study in Japan, it was a case study. They, I don't know why they thought of doing this. They gave him a very high load of sodium bicarbonate, I think like two grams or something. And he didn't develop any symptoms, you know, pr- prophylactically, you know, beforehand, he didn't uh-huh. develop any symptoms. So I started thinking about what Dr. Rapp said, and then this, 
what I was recommending for a long time to patients, especially the ones that had food allergies, like they would go to a wedding, a bar mitzvah, or someplace where they didn't know where the, what was going to be in the food. I said, you know, take two sodium bicarbonate before. And as yeah. you know, it changes the pH, which again, it's chemistry, affects the mast cell releases. And then recently I saw a paper where omeprazole does some, something also those proton pump inhibitors somehow affect the mast cell. So what do you think about that? I don't know if you've tried that or do you think it's an interesting thing? No, you know, in terms of, I'm, I've been fascinated by the um, foot trigger exercise centers and aphylaxis and we've published with Dr. Sheffer. So you could actually sit in a chair, watch TV and eat wheat. But if you actually eat wheat and then go run, then and then you have your anaphylactic events. And essentially is, is also the, the two heat. So the antigen per se is not sufficient. You need to change something in the yeah. body. And uh, and it had been said that, you know, the uh, TTA transglutaminase was the enzyme that needed to be changed. And you and people release that enzyme during exercise. And that's why it changes the appetite. Mm. But the pH also does the same thing. So if you change that in one way or another, the absorption of the allergens is different and the epitopes or the pieces that are allergenic do change. So again, I don't do that myself, but I think there's a lot of research that needs to go into that because it's really important. It's easy to do. I've, I've even, again, Dr. Rapp used to recommend even while patients were having a reaction. I mean, obviously if you need epinephrine, you're gonna, you have to use that, but it's just so fascinating. Again, another way. And we, again, we're starting to realize and I'm actually hoping to talk to Dr. Fasano again in a few weeks where he has a new book coming out called gut feelings. I mean, just how important the gut is to Absolutely. The, whole system. But the, th the good thing, the good thing about that, the, the things that we need is control studies. We really need to do that in sure. a way that we know that it's, it's just not, you know, a placebo effect that it's really, because people, I mean, and, and myself included, we think, oh, okay, this is going to help me. And it really, you know, placebo effect can be up to 30%. So we need control studies and that would be really important. I know your time is so valuable. I think I'm going to finish up on one last little area, which is not such a little area, and it's vaccine allergy. It's not something that we thought about a lot before. And I also have a paper that you just published with Dr. Phillips about maintaining safety with SARS-CoV-2. Now, I fortunately had my second shot. Thank God I did fine, but I don't really have allergies. But it is scary, you know, because you mentioned in the paper, obviously, we're having this mass inoculations going on now. And, and typically, an allergic reaction to a vaccine is one in a million, so not too high. You know, reports now from the new Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, I believe, is about 11 cases per million, which is considerably higher. It's 10 times higher. So, so essentially, I agree with you that this is kind of new. I mean, there, there, there's a new vaccine. I had my Moderna vaccine, second shot, like two weeks ago. I just fell under the weather for a couple yeah, of days. Yeah, yeah, you feel awful. Yeah, just to warn everybody. But it, but it gets better the next day, you know, <laughs> but it's, it's awful. Exactly, and it's it's better. We looked at, uh, you know, all the Moderna and Pfizer anaphylactic events. So essentially, it, it is approximately one to two over 100,000, which is higher than other right. vaccines. But, it, but essentially, everybody who has had a hypersensitivity or an aphylactic reaction with one or two epipens, they have been out of the woods completely and very quickly. That's and good. So the treatment, but you know, but you yeah, know what's scary, but I will say this is what's scary because I don't know where you, you probably got your vaccine at the hospital, I assume. You know, I actually had to go, the second place was at, at like uh, the the raceway track here in Long Island. Like, and it was really, it was like being online at a concert, you know, you're just winding through. And all I remember saying to myself, first of all, I brought along my own EpiPens, really probably not so much for myself, but if, you know, being the allergist on call in case somebody else needed it there, uh, it's a little worrisome. I mean, there's this mass thing going on and God forbid there were one or two people going down. Right. Uh, it's, 
And so, and so we have we had made some recommendations for people who actually had severe food allergies, uh, drug allergies, who actually carry an EpiPen. We recommend that they actually carry their un, unexpired EpiPen Absolutely. to the site, and then they are monitored for thirty minutes instead of fifteen minutes. And then the real allergic people, we ask them to get you know an antihistamine, you know their favorite antihistamine, fifteen minutes oh, before okay. thirty minutes. So for really severely allergic people, you know people who have reacted to foods, and then and then the other thing that's really important important is that the polyethylene glycol and the polysorbate. You know, back in, in back in the day, and uh, was it Dr. Kelso out in San Diego was always, you know, was, he was like a big yes. expert on this, but you know, they, okay, so we're looking at the inactive ingredients, but do you think it's the inactive ingredients or again, is it sort of this mast cell complement mediates something else mechanism, you know, especially when it's on the first right. dose, because it looks like it's on the first dose with some of these patients. Right. And most of the patients have never been exposed to, you know, something like a polyethylene glycol or, uh, but there are actually also other patients who have actually been exposed to like Merillax, you know, has polyethylene yeah, right. glycol. And a lot of people have been exposed to Merillax that have not reacted to the vaccines. So again, we really don't know how the vaccines induce those reactions. And the NIH is actually promoting a study to understand the mechanisms of those reactions. My take on that is that people, like you said, who have EpiPens need to bring their, their, need to be monitored for a little bit longer and then need to take, you know, their antihistamine, their favorite antihistamine 30 minutes. And and then and then the benefits of being vaccinated versus not being vaccinated are tremendous. But I mean, would you say to a person that's had a God forbid an anaphylactic reaction to the first one that to not get the second one? I mean at this point. If they had a true anaphylactic reaction, like I said, with a tryptase elevation, then potentially waiting for the second wave of vaccines, which will not contain the polyethylene glycol, we can contain. But but we have a really, really minuscule amount yeah. of those people. You know, it's like a, a handful, maybe 10 people for Moderna or 12 for Pfizer that have truly anaphylaxis on, on that. So definitely, uh, if they have anaphylaxis, we kind of wait for the next wave. Now, the, the good news is that the, we have been following some of those with antibodies. So, you know, Dwayne Wasteman, right, right. uh, a, a B-cell researcher, and they have found that with the Moderna, for example, I have a, a patient of mine is the first guy who anaphylaxis on Moderna here at the BMD, uh, BMC in Boston. And uh, he has really strong antibody titers to the spike protein. Wow. Uh, and 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 so, so again, we one dose might yeah, actually that, that, be That is be right. Sufficient. That is the promising thing, obviously. So... Wow. We have covered so much. I have learned a ton. I hope our listeners appreciate it. I've been telling my patients for weeks now that I was getting the chance to interview and uh, I'm just so glad this came off. So Dr. Sells, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to teach us all about mast cells and why they're so important. Thank you so much. No, I wanted to finish on a kind of an interesting note from my research. So the, the reason I got interested in desensitizing people, so the, my other life is to take people who have had anaphylactic reactions and say to them, you're going to be able to use that medication. And the reason I, we say that is because they have cancer and they want a chemotherapy. Right. That's the, what we call the first line therapy. So we desensitize about 900 cases per year at the Dana-Farber now in the desensitization uh, center that I have created. And now the next generation 
patients, they are actually coming to do that. And my dream is that every center, that cancer center, will have, you know, an allergist or two that would do desensitization for those people. But then people also who have chronic inflammatory diseases that have a monoclonal or something that really helps them, we also want that quality of life. And that's what we really want. And, and the reason I got so interested and I thought this, this was not like a, a kind of a, a moment of, okay, we can do this and not based on, it's because when I was a fellow with Dr. Austin, I discovered that mast cells have inhibitory receptors. So essentially, mast cells are cells that are ready to explode to give, you know, tryptase mm, histamine mm. receptors, but they actually have inhibitory receptors that lock them into the mode where they don't react. And all the desensitization protocols that we have been able to produce are such that we lock the mast cells into an inhibitory mode. And I would like, you know, all the, you know, the people who actually listen to that, you know, the modern allergies and, and all the, the new uh, kind of immuno, clinical immunologists to think about inhibitory mechanisms a little bit like the immunotherapy for cancer. You know, you kind of awaken cells that are dormant, like the T cells that can now attack the cancer. This is the other way around. The mast cells are ready to attack. We shut them down. I am so glad you brought that up. I actually had this on my list. I just didn't know if we were going to have time, but I think it is so important. There are people that are truly suffering that need help, you know, with certain medications and they have these, you know, parent allergic reactions. You are really one of the only people I know in the country that has such a center. And, you know, sometimes I'm lucky I'm in New York. They can go up to see you. Uh, I've referred people. And yeah, it would be, it would be tremendous, especially in New York and other cities, you know, unfortunately, we know what's going on in allergy with the fellowships kind of shrinking and the whole field really in flux. I think it's such an important expertise. I hope that you'll do a course. Maybe I'll come up and do some training with you and, uh, <laughs> and other people in New York because this does come up and it's very frustrating for patients. But yes, your center is really world class. No question. Well, you know, as allergists and clinical immunologists, we can reach to all the other specialties. That's right. and, and that's what I think is really important, that a, a multidisciplinary approach. In medicine, we, ha- we have a tendency to have silos. But my tendency is the other way around, maybe, you know, because I, I was brought in a place where you, you speak different languages, but you actually have to communicate. Yeah. And, and for me, that's what, the only thing that works. That's beautiful. You know, and I'll, I'll end with a really funny story too. The, the head of my fellowship program, Dr. Greco, he was actually very well known because he was a head AIDS researcher. He was pulmonary. He was board certified in four different specialties, but he used to sit there sometimes and like moan a little bit because, you know, the problem with our specialty analogy is we don't have an organ. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, you're a pulmonologist, you have the lung, you're, you're cardiologist. And I remember him saying that, yeah, that's not good. But then, you know what, over the years, to me, like you being a detective, that's what I love about our specialty. I'm not held to any one organ. We, you know, we have to deal with this whole body and be really good detectives and help our patients. I was going to say, we don't have an organ. We have the language. Yes, we yes. have the language that's to communicate. And that's the most important thing. We can actually teach every one of the specialties. Your reactions to the medications are not toxic. Right. You actually, those are immune reactions. The patient can go back to the medication. That was my first teaching to oncologists. Oncologists, you know, don't even look at allergies until now. And now they look at us. It's like, oh my gosh, this is not a toxic effect of chemotherapy. No, this is an immunological effect. It's likely IgE. The patient can go back. The patient can be disabled. So we have a universal language. And I think that's a really, really important for the next generations. We have a specialty that is thriving and should thrive because we can help everybody, starting from the patient. Well, you're an amazing role model and uh, inspire all of us, you know, as uh, allergy doctors. So again, thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you, Dr. Mitchell. That was a pleasure to have you and be able to, you know, to talk a little bit about, you know, the passions that I have in life, you know, from many, many years. Thank you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at DeanMitchellMD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.